So a guy walks into a bar and says, Hey, I just want to sit for a minute. Separate myself from all the things my mind thinks it needs and needs to get done. Just enjoy the richness of life as it is. The bartender looks at him and says, Well, what does he say? Welcome to the Surf Conscious Podcast. My name is Stefan. I'm a meditation and mindfulness teacher. And recently I decided that all of these principles get tested properly in the grit and grime of service life. You know, stuff like waiting tables. So that's where I've been in the field, learning everything I need to know about how to master ourselves, doing very unglamorous things, old school. I'm bringing back a lot of bones and I'm speaking with some amazing people. So listen to find out how this all comes together. Jump in, Jehoshaphat. It has been way too long since I've been able to sit down with this mic in front of my face and uh, talk to you all, as well as edit and publish a podcast. I just finished editing uh, the interview with Philip Sauerbeck, and I'm really, really excited to bring that to you. It's been, I think, over a month since um, I've put a podcast out. There are reasons for that, and it has to do with my lack of ability to live a balanced life. Let's be honest, I don't always make the time for the things that are important to me. And I could be really dedicated to something, and then I can get thrown off track by new opportunities, and also unforeseen challenges. I had a lot of both uh, during the month of March. It started with uh, taking on a new role as beverage manager for um, a really amazing restaurant and hospitality group. During the beginning phases of roles like that, I often have trouble leaving the cockpit and um, doing other things. I get totally absorbed in nailing everything, exploring all the creative possibilities uh, and getting the cocktail menu absolutely right. Cocktail menus, along with service standards and all this stuff that needed to be basically built from the ground up. And so I get so absorbed and obsessed with stuff that it can take over other things that I thought I was absorbed and obsessed with. So if that wasn't enough, uh, just as I was achieving mission control with um, one phase of this new position, I um, went on a schedule trip that I'd scheduled for like over a year to uh, the Caribbean and realized I couldn't get back into the U.S. after probably... <laughs> Uh, because the government shut down, had backlogged everything, and they didn't send me these papers to um, extend my uh, two-year permanent residency status that they should have sent me, and I didn't realize that until I was gone. And uh, I won't bore you with the details, but it led to an unexpected trip to Canada and um, a crossing of the overland border in uh, Buffalo, uh, New York, and um, flying from there back to Miami, finally, miraculously. Many thanks to a very kind and understanding um, border control officer. Wow, that was an amazing experience. There are lovely, wonderful people in the world, even at the U.S.-Canadian border. <laughs> what a journey. So many tributaries of topics and issues that sprung out of my experiences in the last month that I certainly plan to circle back to 
and talk about in future episodes. But priority one today is pulling this interview with Philip Sauerbeck from the archives and delivering it to you. It is a truly pleasurable and relaxing experience. I remember amidst all the whirlwind of all this stuff happening in my life and just sitting in my mom's living room, actually, in Toronto, um, editing this episode and just feeling his voice relax me and feeling his perspectives and his modalities that he uses to kind of slow down, contemplate, and enjoy and express gratitude for life. Tapping into that just gave me this wonderful, serene feeling and tremendous inspiration to just reflect on everything happening. Find the greater context, find the greater wisdom within all of my experiences. And it really was an anchor, a lifeline amidst all of these turbulent waters. So sit back, get in some comfortable clothing. If you're not in comfortable clothing, you might find things going that way beyond your control. (laughs) All of a sudden you're putting on your coziest pair of sweats. You're uh, brewing yourself a cup of tea. You're uh, finding the part of the house that is the nicest play of natural light, and you're just surrounding yourself in the comforts and pleasures uh, that are right there and available to you in your own home, in your own life. You might find yourself appreciating just where you are. So I look forward to what you think of all of the topics that we cover. We just sort of weave through an eclectic tapestry of topics uh, ranging from expressly Buddhist and mindfulness principles that you can apply to your life and discussions of simpler things that may not seem as directly mindfulness-oriented but offer so much more than they might seem. Anywhere from keeping a calendar of three-line reflections and having hobbies. Actually, we got pretty deep into a conversation about the importance of having hobbies and the pursuit of the depths of what you're doing in life and how this all fits into living a truly fulfilled life, no matter what you're doing. A brief intro on Philip. He is the founder and director of Totem Tea and SlowEmpire.com. Those are his official businesses, but he is a general collector of hobbies. So there is so much to him that is not just official business. And I look forward to you experiencing those layers as we chat. Such an interesting discussion. Please enjoy. Okay, I am here with Philip Sauerbeck of Totem Tea, of Calendarium, of a couple of other really cool practices as well that I hope he talks about too. And um, one of them is a Sufi counseling practice that um, I definitely want to spend some time talking about. Um, Yeah, Philip does so much stuff. And 
first of all, because he's a super interesting guy. Secondly, uh, because you will get exiled from Portland if you have less than four projects going at any given time. <laughs> so, That's true. <laughs> uh, bus- everyone in Portland needs two business cards stapled together to fit <laughs> all of the shit that they do. <laughs> So, yeah, thanks for being on the show, Philip. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, Philip's also a really good friend, and uh, we uh, had a lot of great times hanging out and having tea and talking about its wonderful nuances and possibilities because uh, I am a tea enthusiast, and he is a tea purveyor, so we generally meet in that glorious middle space of tea consumption and appreciation. <laughs> All right, Philip, Welcome. Thank you very much, Stefan. Super glad to be here. So I'm just, uh, I'm opening your uh, Lugu competition dong ding right now. Oh, dope. <laughs> I feel oh. it's fitting to drink one of your teas during this interview. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that, that makes me feel great. <laughs> and actually, I've drank all Taiwanese teas today to get into a Philip wavelength. Good, actually. good. That's so. what I like to hear. <laughs> I don't know. What do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about, I I would like to talk first about totem tea because that is kind of the OG thing that I identify you with. And that's how we met through tea. And then uh, I'd love to hear about how all these other things you are doing have sort of um, come into the fold. I've had a just long time love affair with tea, you know, since my, my early twenties when some some tea was gifted to me. Um, it was some some sencha and some genmaicha from Japan, and I got these teas, and I had really no idea kind of how to brew them aside from using this like little tea egg type of thing that I had. And I tried it, and I was like, "Oh, this is quite interesting and quite different." But I'm pretty sure I'm doing it wrong, you know. <laughs> so. Um, I just, you know, I, I went to the library and got some books about tea culture and got a, some like coffee table style books of like tea in different uh, countries in the world. And I, and I just saw some teaware from Japan. I saw like my first Kyusu and I just fell in love with tea preparation. And it really just appealed, appealed to me, appealed to my kind of uh, mechanical sensibilities and just I and also to my artistic sensibilities I think that's really one of the first things that I fell in love with was the beauty of Japanese uh, tea process Mm. and so from there I just started taking a, a deep dive into my exploration of tea and and I would just love making tea for other people. And after, let's fast forward like 12 years, um, after a trip to Taiwan, I decided, you know, I just want to bring, bring some tea, uh, you know, there would be more than I could drink by myself um, <laughs> because I was meeting with merchants and growers. And at this time, I was working with my business partner, Dan, and we would just travel around and find teas that were really interesting, we'd buy a lot, and it was easy for me to put a website together and do branding for it. 
Um, and that's really the primary kind of origin of Totem Tea. I, I run it by myself now. I also sell really fine incense, also from Japan, Taiwan, and China. That's where the tea I come from, that tea I source comes from. And I'm primarily kind of specializing in oolongs, black tea and green tea. These are my favorites, for sure. Yeah, incense too. Incense I learned about after getting into tea. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um... I had originally considered it just sort of like, you know, ornamentation that kind of exists on the periphery. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, that's how we all associate it. You know, like, even though, you know, we know like the powerful relaxing qualities of, you know, maybe like a sandalwood, um, right. like, you know, burned into the air. And mm-hmm. I'd known about this, you know, since I got like deeper into, um, my studies of uh, meditation and its origin, you know, and incense's role in that. Um, But I did not realize how serious uh, devotion to simply incense in terms of um, making it uh, Mm -hmm. and then preparing it and appreciating it um, was uh, until... Well, of course, it was the Japanese, you know, that, <laughs> that would take it mm-hmm. this far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, it's, and its relationship to uh, the way of tea. Um, and, and, and actually, it, it's just simply become its own way, uh, its own spiritual path, simply mm-hmm. pairing and burning incense ceremonially. Um, mm-hmm. So, and you're um, one of the, I think one of the, one of the few tea purveyors I know about that really has uh, begun to um, sort of promote incense appreciation. So. Yeah, I'm wondering what kind of um, brought you into appreciation for incense as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love incense almost almost as much as I love tea. And truth be told, like the after you've brewed your first like infusion of a tea, like in a small teapot or gaiwan, the smell of the leaves after that first infusion is my favorite part of drinking tea. And I have like a, I guess I would say just like a really intimate relationship with my sense of smell and so fragrance from incense that's natural and has really natural ingredients and that burns lightly and subtly um, is something that I, I just enjoy in a really kind of profound level similar to tea most most people who have experienced incense you know they're coming in from the world of nag champa yeah um, like like double hit Sai Baba, like Indian incense that like you're trying to cover up your joint when you're, when you're in college, you know? (laughs) And like, that's that type of incense in Indian incense, like devotional, big floral fragrance incense is really meant to be burned outside and burning that stuff inside is, I find just super overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So incense from, Japan in particular, and Taiwan and China also, depending on where in China, they have very thin incense that doesn't have a bamboo stick or core in it. It's just pure material, and it burns very lightly, and the smoke is very subtle and atmospheric. And they use, a really nice incense will use fragrant materials like sandalwood, 
aloes wood, and then various different spices like clove, cinnamon, camphor, benzoin, all these types of things make up recipes. And it's, they're really just as beautiful and atmospheric as tea can be. And tea and incense for a long time really have been best mates. And, and their kind of place alongside mindfulness, meditation, kind of calming down, centering, has, has a very long history as well. So it was, for me, it was really kind of a no-brainer to bring incense kind of into the totem tea kind of collection of products. It was just kind of a matter of figuring out kind of the logistics kind of side of things, like how am I going to package these things? What kind of things are going to be appealing to people who are new to this type of incense? You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, um, when I discovered incense, uh, at this level, it it involved a complete and utter, uh, about face in terms of my relationship to it and actually uh, made me think about my relationship to any experience. Um, and, and actually my shift from like, a entirely yogic practice and perspective into ones that were more, I guess you can say like Chinese, Tibetan, Japanese, more Buddhist and Zen oriented to um, the marrying of those worlds uh, demands a certain move into the, the subtler, more mannered realms. And so, you know, like the anything sort of Indian uh, oriented, um, not anything, many, many tendencies in Indian practices are out loud you know, like they're just mm-hmm. very, it's just, and like Indian incense is like a pure expression of that. It's just so explosive, you know, and so it's so in your face. And actually the, um, the properties and the relationship to Indian incense is a lot more passive because literally like it'll do its work. Just let it do its work. You don't have to be involved in the process. Mm-hmm. But um, interestingly with Japanese incense, you actually um, find yourself um, achieving uh, or getting more out of the incense by paying attention to it. And, Definitely. <laughs> and so, and the paying attention to it is a meditative and a mindfulness practice because it is so subtle and ethereal and, and so rewarding uh, when you, you know, do notice those subtler layers. And it is totally, it is a total metaphor for the difference in, in practices that I was using. A meditation practice that's passive and effortless, you know, using a, using a yogic, uh, like a mantra from, you know, yogic tradition, mm-hmm. uh, which just kind of passively does its work. And I just sit back and let it roll. And then, you know, more like Chinese, Asian, Buddhist practices where it's like, no, it's, it's your mind's, your mind is responsible for, for seeing the magic happen. <laughs> it's not just going to happen passively. That's right. There's a, I think that's a really neat way to put it. It's like you have that kind of passive or kind of, inert way of kind of doing meditation and kind of receiving a meditation practice. And then there's like this other way that is a bit more activated and it's almost, gosh, I was, I was reading this essay by, by Heidegger and he was talking about waiting without an object or something like that. And it made me think a lot about meditation in which you're just focusing your mind or focusing your attention without kind of really an object. 
kind of right. to it. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there's some really old uh, <laughs> incense party games that people would do in Japan. And so they would be in kind of a long room and one person would set an amount of incense in either either a stick of incense or they would be heating a a small square of aloes wood or sandalwood kind of on a little volcano made of ash with a coal inside and everybody would sit on the opposite side of this long room and they would just wait (laughs) until like the smoke came over and they all had like a little card in which they would write down the name of the incense or like the as soon as they smelled it, you know, or, and then they would kind of compare notes. <laughs> I love that notion of just like people waiting together and people just focusing their sensibilities together. And it's, it's very, it's very similar when you're in like Sangha and people are just meditating together and nobody knows what anyone else is thinking, but there's something that's super warm and connecting about meditating next to someone. Mm-hmm. you know and i like that yeah even though it's you know an internal practice meditating mm-hmm. um yeah doing it together as a power to it and actually especially with uh you know the work sabina and i do especially i'd hardly, I'd hardly even call it work but the things we do where we gather people and uh enjoy tea in silence and um everyone just sitting and enjoying and appreciating the tea in their own way mm-hmm. that can't truly be known by the other. Cause it's your own very, very deep and complex internal experience that all occurring together simultaneously around the same tea has this incredible unifying ability that is, that is way, way more powerful sometimes than sitting and chatting you know, sitting around chatting, getting to know each other. What do you do? What do you think? You know, what is that? Like, like yeah, because I mean, you know, words can be so alienating. But uh, mm-hmm. even if you're like saying stuff that the other person thinks is really cool and really great and really interesting, um, they have this hard alienating quality to them in a way. Because, um, you, you know, you're just making someone's mind work harder and think harder and doubt harder. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like something as simple and spacious as like tea or incense shared together has this way of uh, connecting uh, us, not just like via our minds, but something else, you know? Yeah, I agree. I, I would say that I have a general philosophy of like being kind of an iconoclast. And if there are kind of things that I perceive as barriers, um, I really would love to knock those things down. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really wanted to do with Totem Tea. Because I think in tea and in coffee both, um, there's quite a few ways in which people feel excluded mm-hmm. by tea. I'll just focus on tea. One of the ways is kind of the, the, they think that tea is like a beverage for kind of elite, kind of like so many people, when I talk to them about tea, I'm like, oh, I have this tea business. And like, are you a tea drinker? And they're like, oh, well, you'd hate the tea that I drink. Like, I I hear that all the time. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people, I think people think that like, oh, if you drink tea, you must be super elite and your, your tastes must be super refined. And I just don't, I, I would love to debunk 
kind of this notion that in order to enjoy tea, you have to be drinking the best of the best. You have to have the best brewing equipment. You have to have the temperature right, the timing right, da 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 da. Um, I think that anyone can find something to enjoy kind of in any cup of tea and any cup of coffee and in any kind of experience that's going on. There's, there's a, a chance for kind of diving into the mystery of like whatever's happening. Even if, even if I'm drinking a tea, I'm like, Oh, that's, that tea has got uh, not a lot going for it. Um, (laughs) It might still like remind me of something that's really, you know, Anyway, so that's one of the things I really wanted to do with Totem Tea is just not, I didn't want to make something that would kind of create an elite barrier. I want to just make great tea available Mm -hmm. kind of to people. And the other thing is that I also see a lot of tea, I'm just going to call it tea mysticism. You know, people who have a notion that... Tea is like a is only this new age type of beverage that can only be enjoyed like in a kind of heightened spiritual state or something like that. And you know, and I think that some people will market tea as being this tea has incredible chi. And and that may be true, may or may not be true, but it's kind of something that ends up being a barrier for people who don't speak that language. Yeah. So that's another kind of thing that I wanted to do with totem tea with both tea and incense is just focus on bringing products that I really like kind of and making, making them available and just taking like some of the guesswork out of that thing, but also, you know, putting good, intention into the selection and presentation of these things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the brand is very relatable and, uh, and without seeming like it is, uh, I would say like stripping away uh, the essence of what tea is, the essence of what, what good tea is. I mean, cause there's just, there's so many websites that really try too hard to bleach out any of the like scary Chineseiness about things, you know, and just mm-hmm. try to ma- just, you know, they just try to make it like look really, really modern and, you know, full of bubble gum and like candy and all that s- stuff to, to, to mm-hmm. hide the actual existence of a medicinal leaf. And uh, yeah, to- Totem, Totem uh, has this really great balance of being um, relatable, but also, yeah, really still honoring tea, right? Definitely. So, on we move. Okay. Totem Tea, well, Totem Tea is established. Mm-hmm. And now yeah. you're like, what's next? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, really kind of what next as project-wise was Calendarium. And Calendarium is, a, I guess, at a very high level, it's a journal, but it's in the form of like a modified month layout calendar. <clears throat> so if you imagine like a desk calendar where you have like the month of February mm-hmm. out there, um, it's kind of like that. And that there's kind of a, rec- a, 
a smallish rectangle for each day in which there's enough space to write a few sentences describing your experience of being alive that day. So this project is kind of a short form journal. And how it, I guess, I've been journaling this way kind of for a while. Um, you know, having, making little notes in my month calendar, like a paper month calendar that was just like, who did I have lunch with kind of today? Or like, this person really pissed me off, da 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 And just like super small in terms of like the content. And when I would look back over those notes years later, I really found that just even seeing this tiny little crystal of, of an event that this whole memory just kind of origami to open kind of in my mind. And I was like, oh, it really doesn't take that much to initiate kind of a, a reverie, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> for a memory. So, <clears throat> and I would oftentimes feel a huge amount of pressure, like when I would when I, when writing was a, a very significant part of my life, I would feel a huge amount of pressure to like journal hard kind of every day. And I be sure to like fill the page, be sure to do this stuff. And it wasn't a very fun exercise mm -hmm. kind of for me. It was kind of like a workout that I didn't enjoy. Right. Um, <clears throat> but journaling in the short form fashion, I, I found that, you know, if I just take, five minutes to reflect on my day and write a couple sentences about what was really meaningful. What was it like being alive as Philip this day? Mm -hmm. um, just making a practice of that I've found to be incredibly rewarding. And so last year I was like, well, these ones that I've been printing at home and, <laughs> and binding at Kinko's, I'm going to just try doing a larger run of them. And so I launched, launched a Kickstarter for the project and, um, and then, you know, released them kind of near the end of 2018. Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I love that idea because, you know, um, I, I remember doing this too, you know, feeling like I've got to sit down and write down something literary with every yeah. journal entry and something that, that includes that details all of the profound realizations I've had and all of the things I've noticed in detail. Uh, otherwise they're just lost forever. I noticed uh, that I was, you know, obviously yeah, it weighed on me too. get it all down. But like, you know, those archives, those are within us. We just need to write down the index, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Is that, it's kind of like what it feels like. And, I, and I've used, um, I have a calendarium, and I encourage the listeners to get one as well. Uh, I, uh, and I have written in it. And yeah, it's just this like, I'm just creating this little like keyhole into an already vivid account of it, you know, within my uh, memories, within my mind. And even if it's not like exactly detailed, it's somewhere in the subconscious, all the lessons I've learned, you know, and it'll just bloom as soon as I uh, tap into it, you know? Yeah, that's right. One of the things that was a big motivator for me to actually turn this project into a reality, or it really just validated this way of working is that 
I was in a counseling session with my counselor and we were just kind of working on kind of new territory stuff kind of in my life. You know, I was working on my growing edge in relationships or my growing edge kind of in relating with my parents or, or my job. And, and when she would ask me questions, she would say, you know, this is a question for you to take home and journal about. Mm-hmm. But I don't want you to write more than three sentences. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was like, oh, why is that? And she said, well, once you start writing more than three sentences, your, your analytical mind and your critical mind engages. And, and it starts judging your experience. And kind of taking it away from the impulse and moving it into um, analysis. So one of the, and that really, that really stuck me, uh, stuck with me. And I think that it's very valuable to just spend a short amount of time. So where you stay with the experience of being alive, the experience of being at the edge of what was meaningful in your day without processing it, without kind of like going in to analyze it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that certainly has a place, but it doesn't have to be kind of what you do all the time. And I, I tend to be a more cerebral person. And so it's very easy for me to, move into analysis kind of with whatever's kind of going on in my life at the expense of being with my actual experience, like with what's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have this contained space for each day within Calendarium to just keep it to the meaning. Yeah. Like just the essence, because I mean, the analytical mind can go on forever, right? I mean, oh, sure it can, can endlessly, endlessly expand. And then, and you know, and I'm, I, I write as well. And I find the more I write, the more I write, because I mm-hmm. comment on what I've just written. And then I comment on the comment of what I've just written. And, you know, one little tiny truth can go on for pages because of the sort of endless ability for the intellect and the analytical mind to hijack um, the essence of that experience and kind of paint, paint a, a picture that's sometimes valuable. Sure. Mm-hmm. I guess sometimes it's valuable to do that. Um, but um, I find, you know, and, and I've noticed this, you know, as I've gotten deeper into, I guess, more Buddhist sensibilities to um, why, you know, like Buddhists or actually anyone that's like a real like master or real, like someone who is like a self-realized being speaks very, very uh, conservatively. It's very measured. They do not waste words. They only really speak to the essence of what is occurring or the essence of what needs to be communicated. Uh, The language part of it actually is usually secondary for them, you know? And so, and I, and me, who's quite wordy, uh, in my speech and yeah, I have a podcast too. You can't not be wordy. (laughs) Like, I mean, we're sitting here talking, right. Um, Mm -hmm. and I obviously it would be hard to transmit something deeper, uh, via podcast without words. Uh, Mm -hmm. but, but to know, to know how few you need sometimes 
to really capture or communicate something is just a really valuable practice, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the rhetorical question of like, how much do you need to do to get in touch kind of with your life and to fully engage with your experience of being alive? <clears throat> there's, there's part of your mind, I think, that's like, oh, you need to do quite a lot. You need to be sure the space is set up correctly. You need to be sure you kind of have these things. You need to be sure that there's nothing that's on your plate. Da, 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 da. <clears throat> and then there's another part of your mind that's like, you don't need anything. Just like, come on home. <laughs> like it's, and, and you can experience that at any point kind of during your day. And I think that this is really one of the benefits of meditation is that things look like a huge feat to accomplish in meditation, but the actual experience of the actual experience of awakenness or aliveness, like it's really just like a very, it's almost like switching focus in your eyes. It's like that close. So there's not, a huge thing that has to happen you know it's just it's just right there and those are always yeah. the teachings that's everything's just so simple really you know happiness joy everything you can possibly want it's quite a simple and it's quite a simple place uh, your mind needs to go and it doesn't involve solving this giant matrix of conundrums to get there right yeah. even though most of us have to crawl through that bed of nails um because of just how we're wired, uh, ultimately what you arrive at is something that's quite simple. And no matter how many times we hear that, or no matter how many times um, we even tap into that place, uh, the, you know, the ego, the intellect, it always kicks in and says, no, 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 it can't be that no. simple. It can't be that simple. <laughs> that's right. And that, and that voice is so strong. And it's yeah. often a voice that's like really hurt as well. And it's just kind of like, <laughs> sometimes even when I, even when I was just hearing myself say that, that like, you know, joy, the, ex the experience of awakeness in your life, it's, it's very present, it's very close, and, in, and it's simple in a way. This other part of my mind, I can hear it just saying like, no, 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 it's yeah. not. <laughs> it's like you're fooling yourself. It's like, there's lots of things you have to accomplish. There's lots of like, you're not valuable kind of if you aren't kind of producing things, you're not valuable kind of if you're not sitting for hours or writing for hours, like there's all, all kinds of things that is going on. And with that part of the mind. And I think my experience is that that part of the mind is, hurt and it's and it's hurt like like a child might be hurt and it has mistaken views kind of because of that and like these mistaken views lead to these ways of acting that you know make us very busy make us very focused on outcome i do i do think it's a it's a mistake but it's like a it's a no-fault crime and it is important to be very compassionate with that part of your mind and of your experience that is, that's hurt, you know, and that, that feels like it needs to have all of these things in place before 
I can sit down and write before I can enjoy my tea before I can like enjoy, enjoy my home or enjoy a book or enjoy my partner. Yeah. I feel it's like a, a disgruntled employee that doesn't feel valued Mm -hmm. and, and um, is now just trying to inflate its own importance in your life, importance of its role in your life because it feels, or is at least representing a part of you that doesn't feel validated. And, uh, Really, I mean, this part of, of you st- still needs to be valued. And actually, there's, I, there's actually um, meditation techniques where you talk to this part of you and you, and you really tell it you're so valuable. Um, but you just need to wait for instructions from the part that's fulfilled rather than saying you're going to be the source of it, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, this doer thinker, you're going to get a lot done. Definitely. You're awesome. But <laughs> you are uh, someone needs to remember who your master is, you know? Uh, and it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly not the intellect and the dopamine rushes of, of accomplishment, the fleeting dopamine rushes of accomplishment, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, do you think, um, do you think that uh, this process um, of reflecting in this way using calendarium uh, it has a therapeutic quality to it as well to resolve this hurt that you describe. You know, I don't know. Like it's, it's an experiment that I'm running, you know, for myself. And I found it to be very useful um, in, in addressing kind of that core hurt because I think that journaling in this way in which you have, you get to look at all of these days, like in a month, kind of in the context of each other, you know, and that some of the days are kind of shitty, you know, like things went really poorly for me this day. I had like a terrible kind of one-on-one with my manager in which I had to be really defensive. I didn't like all of that. And then, and then next week, there's this day in which I um, had a beautiful bike ride to work. I read a passage, like I read a poem that really touched me and I felt kind of connected to the world. Out of all of these types of things, when I get to see all of these days in the context of each other, when I like look back over a month, an experience emerges kind of for me in which all of these things that look like the world of doing kind of having my one-on-one writing to work, reading a poem. But when you look at, when I look at them in the whole context, I see that this tapestry of being kind of emerges. And that is a salve for that doing mind, I think. Because the, the doing mind is really so interested in, like it really, it really wants to help. It really wants to kind of achieve security or millions of other things that it would like to achieve. <clears throat> but it really wants to help kind of the whole system. It's not trying to mess things up. <clears throat> but once once the whole kind of consciousness gets to experience kind of being, it's like, oh, that's actually much nicer and more fulfilling 
than doing. So I do think that it is helpful for healing that part of the mind that really feels like it has to do and do and do. I feel like, um, I feel like too, in that context of uh, looking at all of the days and all of one's experiences throughout the days, it can help reveal certain absurdities in our, you know, the, the commentary <laughs> of our inner voice, right? Because yeah. like, I mean, what's common when we're like triggered or having a bad experience? You know, well, um, the voice will say, everything is shit. Like just, mm -hmm. it's all, it's all bad. It's, it all sucks, right? And everything you've ever done has been flawed in this way. And that's what's led you to this point of suffering that you deserve, whatever, right? And, but then, you know, if you were to reflect and look at your entries, you, you, you might see, but just yesterday, I was having this great bike ride and I felt very deeply content and everything was great. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so if, if that feeling is so available to me, how, how can I say everything is shit? That's impossible. Cause just yesterday it was great. <laughs> like it's, it's all there. Like, like the, the joy of life is all there. The contentment is all there. It's available. And um, wh why am I so fickle? such that some some little experience was allowed you know allowed me to be taken away from this sense of appreciation and gratitude for my life you know mm -hmm. exactly and and th this is kind of the practice of equanimity kind of in our lives is that these these things that kind of look like peak experiences either in like the positive or the negative you know, you know, they, they have like a gravity to them and they try to kind of pull us in to like, Oh, my world is beautiful. Oh, my world is shit. Yeah. Um, but I think maintaining an equanimous view of your life as a whole, or as like the week as a whole or the month as a whole kind of, it's really nice to just like, okay, this thing's happening. It's pleasurable to me but I, I know it's not going to last or, or the opposite with a negative experience. Like my back is really hurting me today. Um, I know it's not going to last. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's a certain comfort that comes with that. And, you know, I think people who have, people have done meditation work or like gone to like a Vipassana course, you know, they've done, that's like the practice I think of a lot of meditation is, cultivating equanimity mm. and and that's really what kind of one of the things i like about calendarium as well is that it makes it very easy to see each day kind of as a part of a larger picture mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and i feel like those ups and downs uh it's good to kind of see the ups and downs uh kind of laid out uh because the first thing it'll probably make us want to do is say okay well what's stable you know what's what's absolutely uh essential and continuous um throughout my experience mm -hmm. uh rather than that i can anchor myself to rather than just simply being at the whim of these forces and um 
been reading a lot about Buddhist Tantra, and that's what Tantra means, of course, uh, continuousness. And Tantra ha- has an interesting, um, interesting view of, you know, living life and, you know, living your reality. And, and it isn't just about equanimity for them. That's definitely, I mean, if you can just cultivate equanimity, actually, that's, that's an enormous, that's an enormous spiritual feat, not to, not to use that language of aspiration, but it is, it takes a lot to really maintain equanimity, especially in this world, because we are tugged around by so much stimulus and um, Mm -hmm. our nervous systems are so taxed. Uh, But they have this word called uh, tamagi nongshen, and that is the word um, that is the sort of state of mind of someone who is having an experience that they believe to be of little value or boring or dull or some, you know, it, it just allows them to paint this picture of life as generally none too inspiring. And it's, you know, believed to be the ultimate fallacy because the Buddhist tantrics. Uh, say, if you're really experiencing reality, it really doesn't matter what's happening. The absolute joy and ecstasy and electricity of the simplest, the simplest phases of being alive is mind-boggling and brilliant. And if you really saw it, it, it would be impossible to be bored doing anything. It's true. Uh, it's so true. <laughs> that makes me think of this uh, Zen passage that I had heard a long time ago, which is like, if you're tired of waiting, wait longer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't think that it means, I don't think that it's like this command to power through waiting. I think that it's this invitation to view kind of waiting as something that just, it isn't like you're not against a wall. You, you might feel like that there's nothing more, but there's a huge amount more. I think that's exactly what, what you're describing is the fallacy in thinking that like, hmm, this is boring. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like, uh, I really like the experience of being bored <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and, and I think that I started to enjoy it a lot after a friend of mine has said, you know, I, I wonder if the word bored like the, the idea of like being bored, like nothing to do, if it has, if it's cognate at all with the word like boring, like to bore into something. Yeah. <laughs> like it'd be interesting if they are. I don't know if I've ever looked that up. But like that the notion that like when you're experiencing boring, that you <laughs> perhaps are boring into kind of something, kind of into yourself and that there's, there's utility in that and that there's maybe gold to be found. Yeah. Either, well, boring would be like perceiving a situation as not nourishing, as not giving you what you need to feel inspired Mm -hmm. and growing, you know, in your lived experience of life. Um, and I think if you are bored, I think you have dug yourself into a place that's expecting something better, perhaps. <laughs> uh, you've, you've overcommitted to, um, to something. 
You've mm-hmm. overcommitted to some framework that this is what joyful and inspiring is, and this is not that. So mm-hmm. therefore, I am bored. And, <laughs> and it goes back to what you were saying about you know, peak experiences. And some people who even fancy themselves quite, quite uh, spiritual and awake um, are peak experience seekers. You know, they think it all happens at Burning Man or like in, during an ayahuasca ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they go back into like the grit and grime of life. And they're like, this sucks. Everyone's asleep. Why can't they just fucking dance naked with me and be alive? You know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, a, that's a serious delusion. And it creates addiction to greater and greater levels of heightened experience that are not sustainable. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, Yeah. Get a calendar, people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to tie this back in. <laughs> yeah. No, Sorry. you did. <laughs> so, to, so to sum it up, go to slowempire.com and buy a calendar. <laughs> uh solid so uh so that's your so that's where it's this is all happening so there's calendarium and that is a product of slow empire um is there more are there more offerings in slow empire right now Mm, no not at this time not at this time but uh i would love to kind of craft more things at some point kind of under that umbrella that has this intention of slowing down People don't like that idea of slowing down. I mean, you know, there's all these, there's a lot of slow movements, um, mm-hmm. anywhere from food to now lifestyle. And I think a lot of people associate that with sloth or unambitiousness. Um, hmm. But I imagine the opposite occurs a lot of the time because, you know, boy, do we waste a lot of energy um, on things that aren't going to be serving us anyway. I mean, I think that there is this yin and yang in all of us, you know, this rajas and tamas that is one, one, the tamas is kind of calling us to slow down and the rajas is calling us to activate. And these things are in a constant dynamic kind of in our lives. And it, I think it's good to have a balance. You want to have enough rajas that and enough yang that you get out of bed and you go experience life and that you engage kind of in life but you don't want to have so much that you are on achievement autopilot or you are on sensation like peak experience autopilot it's kind of like i gotta have the next one gotta have the next one and on and controversially you want to have enough tamas that there's spaciousness for reflection, spaciousness for slowing down, but you don't want to have so much tamas or yin that you're just like, I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm, I, there's, there's no point in to doing it all, you know? Mm -hmm. So all of these things are important, I think, but the, the middle path is, is really quite quite beneficial, I think. I feel like I'm on the coattails of still of that big project, Calendarium, that I launched last year. Mm-hmm. And after, and that was a huge amount of effort putting that together. And you know, since the new year has started, I've 
I've just been kind of finding my balance in the water kind of again after doing that big project. And so I'm just letting a lot of stuff settle. And at times that feels really good. And then it feels like hmm, I'm like taking good time to reflect, get perspective on how things went, what I want to do going forward. But sometimes I also feel a bit anxious because I'm, there's not a, a big active project that I'm working on right. kind of right now. And so sometimes, sometimes when you take like a big slowdown from life, there's, there's some transition time in which your doing mind is it's like, why aren't we doing, why aren't we doing, you know? Right. Right. So, but I'm feeling pretty chill and, and feeling very kind of grateful to chill. Great. Do you yeah. think it's just like, um, like conditioning? Like, it's not like, um, Oh, I don't have a project. I don't have stuff to be doing right now. or feel like I have deadlines to hit and all of this stuff I need to make mm -hmm. best. Like not having that, that's not making you say like, Oh, I need to be doing that or else my life or else life is going to literally collapse around me. It's more just like noticing the anxiety uh, when the sort of mind that's conditioned to doing doesn't have necessarily like a high, high energy outlet <laughs> to do. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think that that's pretty accurate. You know, <clears throat> you know, I like during my normal work week as like a computer programmer, I'm very engaged in mental problems that kind of come up like these little logic puzzles that happen. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and with the various projects that I work on, there's kind of timetable types of things that I'm trying to schedule, especially with calendarium during the whole printing shipping process, trying to get everything out before a holiday. Mm -hmm. But anyway, <clears throat> all of that is, incredibly engaging and stimulating to the cerebral part of my mind. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there's a certain amount of kind of stimulus and gratification that comes from planning these things, accomplishing these things. And, you know, I think I've, it's very stimulating, but I do think it's a superficial kind of stimulation or a superficial type of gratification like mm -hmm. in the doing world because it really it doesn't necessarily touch the being world mm -hmm. um so i think that that's really why taking time for reflection taking time to let the field kind of go fallow you know after yeah. kind of seeding harvesting seeding harvesting it's like it's really good to let things go wild kind of yeah. for a while and I kind of feel like that's what's happening for me right now. And, and that feels quite good actually. And some things come up that are like, Oh, I, I need to deal with that. And, and then there's this moment of like, oh, do I really need, do I have to deal with these things or some of it's the doing mind, you know, going, going haywire. Yeah. I wonder if like, not I wonder, I think I've been told repeatedly uh, by people who know, who, who really do know and practice this stuff better than I do, um, that like doing, uh, you know, doing in the, the sense of accomplishments and satisfaction from doing isn't really what one should be af like after. It's more just like, okay, fine, accomplish that. 
then maybe uh, the mind can experience a bit of relief, a bit of relaxation, so that it can tap into or remember the satisfaction it can get from not doing it all. <laughs> and how that's a deeper satisfaction, that part that's in there that you can really tap into. Mm-hmm. Content. Mm-hmm. The contentedness from accomplishing stuff won't last. But, um, but maybe, maybe it'll remind you to just slow down a bit, let things go a bit quieter within you and mm-hmm. uh, contact, contact the part of you that um, you know, isn't, isn't grasping or striving. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <clears throat> and, you know, both with totem tea and with calendarium, I feel like what I love the most about both of those businesses and kind of products or product suites is that, and is that they encourage, I think, taking time to pause and reflect and any amount of time that you carve out for yourself and say, this is my time for my inner world. This is my time to look at my actual experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very glad to be doing my part to bring, bring more of that kind of into the world. I feel like that's a really beautiful thing to stand for. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I love it. And I, um, when you were doing calendarium, uh, I, I had considered it, um, in terms of like its place in your other projects, mm-hmm. like, um, I guess a sign of eclecticism, classic Portland eclecticism, like another thing, they don't necessarily have to be related, but that's what being like, a, that's what being a cool dynamic Portland person is all about. <laughs> Just doing lots of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but I, but I guess really when you think about really the, the value and intent of tea uh, mm-hmm. At least traditionally, the intent of tea, you know, as not only a medicine, um, a medium for reflection and mindful and meditation practices and spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not, it's not just like, oh, you're giving people some great tasting stuff that's really high quality. Um, you're giving them uh, a medium to, uh, to slow down and reflect just as you are with, uh, with Calendarium. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I do think that they are both highly related in that kind of way. You know, when I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking, you know, I, I might want to read this poem that's in the front of Calendarium for people who don't, for who don't have one. Who, awesome. If that's all right. Please, if it, please. If it, yeah, you can, if it's useful, have it. Um, but it's a, it's a poem by the late John O'Donohue. And it's Love just a... It's just a series of questions. Um, What dreams did I create last night? Where did my eyes linger today? Where was I blind? Where was I hurt without anyone noticing? What did I learn today? What did I read? What new thoughts visited me? What differences did I notice in those closest to me? Whom did I neglect? Where did I neglect myself? What did I, what did I begin today that might endure? How were my conversations? What did I do today for the poor and the excluded? What did I remember the dead today? 
where could I, could I have exposed myself to the risk of something different? Where did I allow myself to receive love? With whom today did I feel the most myself? What reached me today? How deep did it imprint? Who saw me today? What visitations had I from the past and from the future? What did I avoid today? From the evidence, why was I given this day? Amazing. Love it. I love it. I love that too. And I, th I think about those questions a lot, like when I'm just orienting myself to just write a couple sentences about my day. I think awesome. that answering those kinds of things is really great for kind of getting yourself into a position of kind of embracing your life and what's really happening, whether it's like, you know, judged good or bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love John O'Donohue actually. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's awesome. Um, yeah. I love his Irish accent when he, uh, when he, oh, when he contemplates. <laughs> yes. He's so good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And that, that um, poem is like a, it almost reads like a template to uh, for reflection, you know? Definitely. Like, like, are you wondering, like, like where to put your ability to examine? Those are questions we don't probably ask ourselves enough, you know? Mm -hmm. I think so, too. Yeah. I was actually just, um, what reminded me to reach out to you uh, to do uh, an interview, even though it had been in my mind since we since I began the podcast, uh, was my interview with um, one of the developers, uh, co-creators, co-founders of uh, Kyo App, uh, Mark yeah. yeah, Yeah, I listened to that interview. That was oh, great. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, and his is a, his is a you know, um, like a digital journal that's um, about inquiry. The idea is like, um, is about like programming questions into it. And the questions mm -hmm. stimulate the reflection. And, um, and I thought like that would be just a great, cause, cause in that app, there's like, um, modules where you can just like basically ready-made questions for yourself. Um, but that poem would, would be an extremely good module. <laughs> in and of mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> do you use that, but do you uh, look at that poem when you're kind of sitting there in like a blank box in cal calendarium? Um, I do sometimes, um, especially if I'm feeling like nothing happened today <laughs> yeah. or like there's nothing. I mean, sometimes I'll write kind of in like the, the box for that day. Um, nothing happens today <laughs> or like that's my perspective on it. And then almost as soon as I write it, I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah that's just part of that's part of my experience of the day and then i usually kind of say like why why did i feel like this was a nothing day you know <laughs> usually it's like i'm really i'm not i'm not very fulfilled at work you know or, or something like that you know it's mm -hmm. usually something along those lines that i'm i'm giving all my time to business that's i don't find very fulfilling you know, something like that is usually behind kind of why I feel like it was a nothing day. 
right. for example. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of something churning under the surface of the nothing. The nothing is just maybe even like a defensive shield over uh, dissatisfaction or disillusion. You know, that isn't even being mm-hmm. brought to the surface sometimes for me anyway. Yeah, definitely. You know, when this is a, a good point to talk about in journaling, I think there's several reasons, I think, why people feel daunted by journaling. Because when I will tell people that, you know, I'm creating a, a, a journal, they're like, oh, I, I don't like journaling. You know, it's just too much. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by too much? And, you know, there's usually one of two types of scenarios that come up. Um, one of them is like people will feel daunted by this big empty page and feel like that's just too much for me to engage in. I don't want yet another thing that I'm going to not do well kind of in my life. They, they're starting with kind of a, a negative view yeah, about tasks. And the other thing I think that is common is that when people start journaling, when people start reflecting or when people start meditating or contemplating like shit starts coming up, you know, it's like, you know, if you've been on like a long retreat, you know, day three comes around and stuff is surfacing, Mm -hmm. you know, and the thing, and the same thing happens with journaling. And I think that people are kind of implicitly aware that once they start describing their life, they're going to, they're going to come face to face with things that they don't like about things that are happening in their life. If it's, if they're starting from a place of like unexamined. Mm -hmm. So journaling can look very daunting for that reason. So Mm -hmm. this is another reason why I think calendarium is great is because it's very contained and, you know, you can gradually kind of step into exploring your experience of being alive each day. You don't have to uh, dive in like the hurdle isn't so large. You can just go step by step by step and gradually kind of become more in contact with, with your experience, positive or negative. Actually, like in any moment when I'm supposed to like throw down you know, my big analysis and my big statement on something and the meaning and what it all means. Um, I can experience almost immediately a sort of intellectual constipation. Like firstly, like uh-huh. too much trying to get through the door. And then there's a moment where nothing does. And I don't feel that, I don't feel that anything I could get down would represent the vastness of uh of that reality and so and then there's like the like just exhaustion before the process has even begun so Mm -hmm. i like the encouragement to start small because you start with a small observation and then that can bloom into a kind of larger understanding through Mm -hmm. the small input rather than starting with like the need that goal of like make it big and the goal just crushes us you know yeah that's right and the and the small crystals that we that we write down are incredibly valuable. So uh, so where are things at now? I mean, so when you were describing your the Calendarium project to me earlier, um, you know, 
it seemed like, and, and I, just, I totally just realized this because it's a paper calendar and people tend to buy those at the beginning of the year. And then as the year goes on, the the calendar, they're going to get less out of it. So if I bought one like now, I'd only get, you know, um, 90% of functionality out of it in theory, right? <laughs> or 85% yeah. functionality. So I guess people aren't buying them as much now. Is it just like a big rush of production and then and then that's it? <laughs> Yeah, that really, that is one of the challenges kind of with this project is that it is kind of a time sensitive one. You know, when I was reaching out to different brick and mortar places in Portland, um, several of them were like, you know, it's, it's too, it's too time sensitive kind of for us right now. And, we, and, and they, and they already had kind of their journal supply for the holiday season. You know, my, my plan in general is to kind of discount them kind of more and more kind of as the year goes on. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it really is kind of in its current kind of presentation, it is something that's kind of, kind of designed for a whole year, but it's also only $20. So even if you like started midway through the year, I, I think it would still, still be worth it. Um, just if you if you're like you know what I want to do this I don't want to wait for <laughs> for a new year, <laughs> but I I do think that in my future development I would like to design something that would make sense to be picked up at any moment, kind of throughout the year. It's maybe like a perpetual calendar type of thing, but mm -hmm. I still I'm still working on the vision for it because I still like being able to see an amount of days together that feels like, ah, this is, this is a complete unit, like in this month and yeah, I don't know, it kind of brings some meaning to a month or something like that. Yeah. And I think it just helps just uh, give people like, like just really defined boundaries to work within, you know, and it's like, this is this day and you need to write this on this day you know, mm -hmm. and in this amount of space. And it's like, if it's a fill in your own kind of days and months, I think um, it's less likely. I think just something about the human mind is less likely to engage in that activity. Um, mm -hmm. But it's all kind of set up for them and just like insert here. Um, they're more likely to do it, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, this is just the first year of doing it. So, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot. I've certainly learned a huge amount about printing and publication and distribution. Mm -hmm. So hopefully next year I'll be able to just work more. You know, I'd, I'm really looking forward to working with some artists and calligraphers because each with each month spread, you know, there's like three letters names of the month. And I would, I'd love to like work with some, really nice artists to do unique art for the lettering for each of those months and then yeah. kind of reproduce that. So that's kind of one of the other things, but it is, it does really seem so far to be something that's going to sell primarily in late fall. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But like if they got one like now, could they in theory go, go backwards or is the, does the exercise, is the exercise oh. not as effective if one retroactively fills things in? Um, I retroactively fill things in. Like <laughs> when I'm like, I, when I was in Hawaii recently, like 
I missed some of the days and I just like went back and I was like, oh, well, you know, we went snorkeling this day and explored botanical gardens and, and I'm kind of retroactively filling it in just so I can just have that in my notes, even if I didn't do kind of the whole exercise. Right. I, I don't want the calendarium to be something where I have to be really stern with myself and strict about how I use it. Like that, that to me would go against like the point of being really loving to myself and loving to my own life, like regardless of what's happening in it. I want the exercise of doing calendarium to feel just like a breath of fresh air and that I don't have to stress about any aspect of it. Yeah. And, and if I start halfway through the year or if people who have purchased them, you know, in December and maybe they haven't even used it once yet that, that they don't feel bad about it. They're like, all right, well, I'm going to start today and it's March and no big deal. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's just a thing. It's just a tool. And any kind of rules that, that I might, that part of my mind might set up about how to do things correctly. I really would love to challenge those rules in myself and just be, just be loving and just, just jump back in. It's no big deal. I mean, it's just like if you skip some days of your yoga practice or your meditation practice, it's like, you know what? Just go back in. It's just yeah. you and your experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, agreed entirely. And um, though I uh, do like creating, uh, I guess, rules for myself, um, or let's, let's call them that, but with a playful relationship to them. So, for example, in this conversation has reminded me to get back into journaling because um, because everyone everyone cool and smart says to do it <laughs> and and um, and I but I feel to remain on track with it I do have to create rules for myself ones I won't ones I won't uh, judge myself for um, not a, not applying but ones of just being like remember, do it and you'll feel better. You know, just like with everything, it's just kind of like an eat your vegetables thing where I just have to occasionally have to have a little bit of sternness with myself because I feel with journaling at the end of the day um, really does uh, do a very necessary amount of forcing someone into gratitude and seeing the value of one's experiences because, you know, pretty, a pretty common form of journaling that even like really like, you know, just like hardcore tough business guys do is they sit down and they write down the three big, they'll call it the three big wins of the day. You know, the three, three great things that happened today that were just great. And, um, and it, even if it sounds almost like, uh, you know, kind of aspirational and, um, you know, self-development and success obsessed, uh, it, it really does um, bring one's attention into um, the value and, uh, of a day and, and brings one into a state of gratitude. Um, now, of course, uh, that doesn't mean only look at the glossy parts. Um, but like, that's a really good thing to keep, um, pushing yourself into doing because that's the most common thing we'll forget. I mean, we're just going to most likely look at what we're lacking, you know, what we're doing wrong, what we need to fix and work on. Um, and, and one can certainly put those, put their attention on, on 
those things too, or at least negative experiences or uncomfortable experiences they had is, is obviously so important, but, but just really saying like, no, I'm not letting you, I'm Stefan, I'm not letting you put down the pen until you acknowledge the value of the day. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a, uh, that's just something that's, that's good for me to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that establishing a framework, you know, is, is very beneficial, mm-hmm. you know, establishing healthy habits, you know, obviously these things are, <laughs> Every, who, who could disagree that a healthy habit is, is a bad thing. I do think that establishing that healthy habit <clears throat> of questioning criticism is also a good one too. So like when, a, when I deviate from my framework and I become cr- critical of myself or I start feeling down on myself or feeling like, oh, you failed. You failed on kind of filling in the blanks on this thing. You know, like that, that critical voice is, is it's worth questioning. Um, and cause I really do not feel at all that we're meant to live a life that we don't love, you know, and, and when there's something that's going on in our life, that that we don't love or that we're, we're unhappy with um, or when we have like negative self-talk or negative talk about a family member or a partner, like these things are, they're uncomfortable. And I think that they're meant for inquiry. I don't, I don't think that we're meant to live a life that is self-critical. I think that we're meant to live a life that is, it's very loving. I mean, let's call this a sensibility of the, like the university activist critical thinking sensibility, um, where okay. it's purely an intellectual exercise, where you're considered like woke and like truly educated if you're questioning and criticizing everything, right? Um, but what you're describing here is questioning that which even questions and criticizes, you know? Yeah, that's like another layer where you're actually looking at at the very critical mind to see, you know, where's this question even coming from? Like, yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, it's like in in a very compassionate way, kind of asking yourself, what's going on, buddy? Like, mm-hmm. where where's this upset coming from? And like, in in doing that, getting on your own team like not kicking yourself when you're down, you know, taking these kinds of steps, building those types of healthy habits. Um, and, and like you were saying, you know, questioning that, that questioning mind, like that, that critical, that critical mind. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's not to, um, and it's not to like cure oneself of their critical questioning nature. I think it's just good to keep, for, especially for me, because my mind can be very intense, uh, to, to, to always be checking in with the questioning and to see if it's healthy. Is it healthy? Mm-hmm. Is it a healthy amount of critical and questioning? And um, as my, my friend Angie Vroom said when um, she was on, on the show, is it questioning that connects you more deeply with what you're questioning or just simply divides and alienates you from it? 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's like that's good questioning. Questioning that connects mm-hmm. more deeply. Anything else you want to you want to talk about with what you're up to and what you want people to know about? You're a Harper. You're a Sufi counselor. <laughs> There's just so many things here. Um, I just I love having hobbies, <laughs> like and some of them and some of them are just for me, and some of them I share with others. And I think I just want to encourage people to like have hobbies because it's so cool (laughs) like I um you know I've been I was reflecting a lot about calendarium and uh and what does like success mean kind of for me um with a project like this like I I did launch a Kickstarter for Calendarium. The Kickstarter failed in terms of being like achieving its funding goal. So if if those of you don't know, like that means that no money kind of is transferred from anyone's accounts. Mm. So that, that felt like a hit kind of to me. And it felt like a hit to kind of the perceived value of calendarium kind of on my end. Um, but I still kind of continued and kind of launched it on my own website and did a much smaller run than was anticipated. Um, but through that, through that whole process, I got a huge amount of support, you know, people kind of funding the Kickstarter campaign, people uh, later kind of, buying them through slowempire.com. All of these things were incredibly touching to me. And I think no doubt a lot of the people who purchased them, purchased them because they're connected to me, you know, like because they're friends of mine, because they love me. Um, And that was really rewarding. And I ended up having kind of a, a schizophrenic type of experience, not, not full on schizophrenia, but like one p- part of my experience was like, people are only supporting this project because they're friends of yours. They don't really care about it. And then on the other hand, I'm having this really beautiful experience. That's like what you do in the world is valuable. Like, like who you are and the things that you do, people just find those things valuable. And I, and I don't think that that's unique to me. You know, I think that, I think that I feel that way about all the people kind of that I interact with in my life, just that, that the things that they do are, are valuable. I guess as I was thinking about that, I was reflecting that I would love for all kinds of people, if they're feeling motivated and inspired to like take a risk in like sharing something that that's meaningful to you. And, and it doesn't have to be the success that like a, like a kind of a conventional success. It's just, it's just going to be implicitly successful because you're putting yourself out there. That was something that 
that I was a really unsuspected win for me kind of in this whole experience. It's great to look at it like that. And um, I'm sure, and I'm sure your finely tuned reflection abilities helped cultivate that awareness of, uh, of really the lighter side of, of having friends and warm contacts being your buyers. It first of all says, look at how many wonderful friends and warm contacts I've, I've cultivated over the years. And Mm -hmm. You know, uh, isn't that really who we're selling to anyway? Isn't that really what we're trying to build anyway? This community of people like, um, you know, Amanda Palmer talks about in like the art of asking. It's just mm-hmm. all about creating deeper and deeper connections with her fans and, and making them want to pay her for her work because they they love her and have a feel have feel a sense of connectedness to her. I mean... You don't, why else would you want someone to buy something? Not, not simply because you had the right marketing materials that like motivated something in them. Yeah, I think it is great. It was, it was kind of an unexpected, unexpected part of it that really meant a lot to me. I, I feel just, I feel quite touched by the whole pro- project. Yeah. I mean, that is the win. I mean, you can't, you can't expect slow empire to build quickly, Philip. <laughs> yeah. Look at its name. <laughs> look at its name. These people, your market is not going to be highly motivated to do anything. All right. Yeah. Just grabbing a mouse and clicking by, you know, requires a lot of contemplation. Yeah. That could take hours. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's good. Uh. I just, uh, I want to throw down another quote here. Uh, you just reminded me of a Winston Churchill quote I once read when you talked about oh. hobbies. Here's a Winston Churchill quote. And it's surprising that it's coming from him. To be, to be really happy and really safe, why not to have at least two or three hobbies? And they all must be real. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Good, great. Great voice acting, too. That wasn't his voice at all, but I felt pressured to perform. I don't think that's his voice, but I tried I, to be. I feel like it conjured his spirit, though. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done better Winston Churchill impressions before. <laughs> I really like Winston Churchill. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he had to add, like, a pithy Winston Churchill thing at the end, and they all must be real. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because you know there's some person who's just like, oh, yeah, I got a ton of hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they have to be real. Crap. Yeah. What is a real hobby? What's your definition of a real hobby, Philip? <laughs> well, um, I think that it's something that's fueled by the mystery of liking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, um, there's this, I had this boss that I was working with a while ago and he was having this conflict with his son and, and he said to me, he's like, he was telling me about it. He's like, well, you know, I told him, you know, I, I love you, but like, I just don't like you right now. <laughs> and, and the way that that really impacted me was I was like, oh, liking is really powerful. And there's, there's something very special about liking something. And it's not necessarily like a lesser form of loving something. It's all in some ways, it's something that's just different. And I think that with a hobby, you know, you, you feel kind of drawn to it and you feel kind of compelled by it. Like when I, 
when I first heard the Celtic harp live, um, I, I had to be nearer to it and I loved it. And, and, and I just felt so compelled to, to learn how to play it. Um, so I think that having things that are like that kind of in your life where you feel like inside you, this, this strong liking of it, that's a mystery. I think that it's that same type of magnetism that leads us kind of towards the life we're kind of meant to live. And when you can cultivate that in your hobbies, you can then cultivate that in your relationships. You can then kind of cultivate that in all the things that you do. So the joy of, the joy of liking right. <laughs> something. Is this like a really, so it's like a really powerful doorway into the bigger mystery, you know, like, mm-hmm. like the, so. the macro is in the micro as they would say, you know, if you get really great, if you get really, really present and really attentive to serving tea, all of a sudden that you start getting attentive to doing everything. Right. Mm-hmm. So a real hobby would be maybe not one you have forever, but it's more than you're more than just dabbling, I guess. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe that maybe you have, I think, I think it really is just like engaging that part of you that just, um, feels compelled to kind of do this thing, whether it just lasts for like the weekend or it's like, Oh, what? Like, I really would love to kind of replace and repair these back stairs, like at the house, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. And it's different, right? Cause it's not the doing mind so much because there's no obligation. There's mm-hmm. no obligation for completion. There's no obligation to get anywhere with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the doing mind because the doing mind always, it's like, there's like, okay, well, when we accomplish this, then we're going to get somewhere. There's going to be a reward at the end, but hobbies are rewarding in and of themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, and again, I think that you want to have that balance of Rajas and Thomas kind of even in your hobbies too. It's like, if I'm like, I can, it really depends on like what you want out of it. It's like with practicing the harp, um, I can, I can have a good time kind of noodling around kind of playing and like replaying old songs, but maybe there's a part of me that really wants to push myself, you know? And so it's like, you know what, I'm going to drill some exercises because that takes me closer towards this other goal that would be pretty challenging to achieve if I don't kind of apply a little Rajas to it and push myself. Right. Yeah, totally. And, um, Another thing came to me too. I think, I think having hobbies helps with uh, one's, I guess one could say their professional work or the stuff they do that might feel more obligatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I really don't believe in feeling like you're obliged to do anything, you know, like, Oh, I've got to go into the coal mines every day, you know, mm-hmm. or else the family won't eat. And sure, you know, we have to do unpleasant things in our lives in order to survive, but feeling obliged to do them is the prison. 
but mm -hmm. to start reconnecting with the choice to do them um, can, can be so freeing and can so elevate things that seem unpleasant. And I think that hobbies are amazing because they are things we do by sheer choice. And getting into the habit of doing them and me collecting hobbies actually throughout my life and having, you know, creating a connection with this hobby reminds me that I can have that same relationship to my work by saying, I choose to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't feel utterly imprisoned by this and it lightens my relationship to it and um, makes it less like this, like slumped over work I have to do and more like something I can, I can find joy and satisfaction in. Um, rather than it just as a means to an end, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's great. Totally. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think I'll let you, I'll free you now uh, to, your, <laughs> okay. to, to, to explore one of your endless hobbies and vocations. <laughs> um, but I will, uh, but I can't be the last one um, sermonizing here. Please tell everybody uh, where they can find you. Uh, oh, sure. and, and what you want them to tap into right now that Philip is putting out into the world. <laughs> sure. Well, if you want to find Philip or <laughs> any of uh, Philip's shareable hobbies, <laughs> you, can, you can go to uh, totemtea.com for tea and incense from Japan, Taiwan, and China. Or if you want to find a calendarium for yourself or a loved one, you can go to slowempire.com. Boom. Just like that. Boom. That's it. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> okay. Any, um, any quotes or poems you have to, to leave anyone with? Hmm. Well, I'll read another short sentence that's also at the beginning of Calendarium. It's a one sentence. It's by a guy we like to call Emerson. Um, Heaven walks among us ordinarily muffled in such triple or tenfold disguises that the wisest are deceived and no one suspects the days to be gods. Whoa. That's deep, man. <laughs> That's perfect. No, that, that, that is actually, that, that has within it a lot of what we were talking about. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent job, Calendarium, for being so <laughs> relevant and poignant to our discussion. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Philip. Uh, thank you very much, Stefan. This was a lot of fun. And I'm really excited for your podcast series. And I wish you super great success in it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad that um, our wonderful conversation could be made available to everyone. I'm really excited for them to hear this and for them to uh, get some tea and um, get some reflection into their life via your amazing offerings. So thank you so much. Thank you for dropping by the Surf Conscious podcast. Please check out the website, www.surfconscious.com, for more free content that strives to give you what you need to achieve growth, inspiration, wisdom via your life of service, and take service principles into every avenue of life to elevate it. Okay, until next time, ciao.